Hello everyone and welcome back to the Dead Letters Podcast. I'm your host, VP Morris, and thank you so much for listening. I really hope you've all been enjoying the show so far, and I wanted to go over a few ways you can support and follow the show. One, you can make a donation of any size greater than $2 via PayPal. You can also leave a five-star review on iTunes or Stitcher. You can follow on Twitter or Facebook at Dead Letters Pod. You can also follow on podbean.com or through the Podbean app. That is the hosting site for this podcast. Any support that you can give that helps the show get to other listeners and helps guarantee there being a second or even third season is greatly appreciated. All the ways you can support the show and follow on social media are in the show notes below under support the show. I also wanted to say thank you to Sherry, the host of your podcast or mine, for having me on last week. If you want to know more about me, the show, or how I got the inspiration for it, you can go check out her episode. That information is also in the show notes. And now for the recap. Last episode, Fiona received her second dead letter and was able to witness Charlotte's ability to predict the events of her life down to the minute. With that said, let's get into it. The Dead Letters Podcast, Episode 4, Memento Mori. Daisy Fairchild was not what one would expect of a pastor's daughter, I read aloud. She was not meek or homely as many girls raised in the constant vicinity of little white churches were. Contrarily, she was vivacious. Her constitution shimmered and bubbled with a deep lust for life that every old woman or man who saw her run past them with bare feet and a bouquet of wildflowers deeply envied. It wasn't just that a grown girl of 17 still played as merrily and as happily as her much younger siblings that bothered them, no. Instead, it was the fact that she was not ashamed of her youthful nature and wasn't going to try to change it. I continued on as a group of 20 of my classmates watched. Many of the wagging tongues of the women who frequented Pastor Fairchild's Sunday service would say, That girl needs to grow up. She'll be a wife and a mother soon. That is no way for a young lady to behave. These women, with their tight bonnets and white lace gloves, didn't know that Daisy Fairchild had indeed grown up the day her mother died. I paused. Professor Jameson was studying me. She took off her thin glasses and was gently gnawing at the right stem of her frames, a habit she only partakes in when she either hates or loves a student's work. I froze for a moment, trying to guess her assessment before I forced myself to continue. It was a Wednesday, and everything was wet. The heavens had opened, releasing buckets of water on the earth for three straight days. The ground was drenched, the walls were damp, and her mother's sheets were soaked through with her sweat. Come on, mother now. Get up, said Daisy. Time to change the linen. You can't be lying around in dirty sheets all day. Daisy pulled the top sheet from her mother, but she didn't respond. Daisy let out a laugh, thinking her mother was joking. Daisy yanked the pillow out from under her, and her mother's head bounced against the mattress, and lifeless eyes glared up at her under two heavy eyelids. Daisy put her hand on her mother's arm, expecting to be greeted by the feverishly hot skin she had tended to for the last week. Instead, her mother was cool. Daisy learned the harsh truth about life from the touch of that cold flesh. The truth that life was fleeting and full of sorrow, and if you let it, it would break your spirit. Now, one year later, as Daisy played a game of chase with her siblings, she did so with a lock of her mother's hair preserved in resin on a pendant she wore on her chest. A little reminder that told her the gift of life was not permanent, so she must enjoy it while she had the chance. I closed my work and took a seat. 
The audience, which was comprised of my creative writing classmates, were silent and stared at me with wide eyes. Excellent work, Fiona, cooed the professor. Okay, Kyle, I believe it's your turn next, she said turning to the slightly chubby student in the second row. Nope, not a chance, he said. I'm not following that up. Oh, don't be silly, Kyle. I'm sure your work is just as riveting. Professor Jameson motioned towards the front of the class. Okay, Kyle muttered. He then proceeded to fill the next 15 minutes of class with a story about a realistic sex robot from our times being sent back to the Regency period in England to have a romantic relationship with Jane Austen. Just as Kyle was about to describe a three-way between the robot, Jane Austen, and Elizabeth Bennet from Pride and Prejudice, Professor Jameson raised a finger and said, I think that's enough for one day, Kyle. Oh man, this is the best part, he protested. Sorry, we're almost out of time, she said. The professor gave us a few critiques, lectured us on doing research before starting a historical piece, and handed out our reading assignments for the next week. Grace and I packed up our things to go. She was taking this class with me as an elective, but didn't like how the course added much more work than she thought to her already difficult schedule. Wait, Fiona, can I speak with you for a moment? Asked the professor. I turned to Grace to tell her to go on without me, but she left without saying a word. Lost in her own mind, like always, I thought. I followed Professor Jameson through the narrow corridors of the Humanities Building. It was the oldest building on campus, so it didn't have the wide walls, the bright skylights, and modern staircases that were big enough to handle a stampede of students changing classes in passing period. Instead, this building had shoulder-wide walls that twisted and turned, revealing classrooms, offices, and even bathrooms that most students didn't even know were there. Professor Jameson's office was a large room divided into three separate workspaces by cubicle-like partitions. On either side of the walls, the professor's desks were backed by a bulky built-in bookshelf teeming with books and binders. On her desk, stacks of paper and forest green folders rose up on the wooden surface, making a frame around the plain-looking professor. I sat down in the creaky chair on the other side of her desk as she fired up her computer. The blue from her screensaver of a tropical beach illuminated her soft, unmade-up face that was delicately crowned in a veil of loose curls. She is my favorite teacher at school, probably because she is old enough to be a bit of a mentor, someone who has experience, unlike the fresh-faced PhD candidates who teach a class with nervousness shaking their vocal cords. But she isn't old enough to be numb or jaded by the repetition of her job. I can tell that she still cares about her students. Your work was outstanding today, she said to me. What? Really? I asked her. Yes, of course. Did you see the stunned looks on everyone's faces? She asked, excitement dripping from her voice. I assumed everyone wasn't paying attention. They didn't even applaud at the end, I said. No, they were blown away, she said, motioning an explosion with her hands. It's such a short piece and I'm nowhere near finishing it, I told her. Stop making excuses. You have a real talent. It's like you were there, actually there, in 1810, watching Daisy play, knowing what her emotions were like, and the memento mori. Such a lovely historical detail. Some of your classmates failed to do any research at all, but you clearly pulled out all the stops. I want you to finish this short story and submit it to the York Haven Chronicle. It's the literary magazine I co-edit, and we specialize in historical fiction. I'm sure the other editors would love to publish it. Really? 
You think so? I said, trying to hide my beaming smile. Of course! Now, I can't promise anything. There are five other editors who must agree on the publication of each piece, but I think you have what we're looking for. That's amazing! I'll go home right now and work on it! I said, wrestling my heavy backpack and heaving it onto my shoulder. Great! Can't wait to read it! At home, I sat at my desk in my room and tried to make the words come, but I felt off. Something about what Professor Jameson said stuck in my mind. I hadn't done any research on the time period. I hadn't dug into any history books to learn about the clothing or the social attitudes or even the memento mori. It just came to me. It always just comes to me. I'll be sitting on the couch or wrangling a load of laundry into the machine or, or in the middle of running on the treadmill at the school gym and bam, I see it. It's like a curtain is pulled back and I can peek into this world that isn't mine. Medieval Europe and its filthy streets and decaying bodies, the pomp and circumstance of the Court of Versailles, or even the Vietnam protests of the 1960s. I can see it all and in full detail. I can smell the powder off of Marie Antoinette's wig. I can hear the anti-war cries of teenagers who are now senior citizens. It's overwhelming, but freakishly accurate. But today, this bizarre occurrence isn't happening to me. All I can do is stare at the blank white screen. I slammed my laptop shut. Whatever. It'll come soon enough. It always does. Writing my historical fiction piece for creative writing was a nice distraction from my letters. Three weeks have passed and nothing life-threatening or even vaguely interesting has happened since the incident at the Red Lantern. The three of us in this house have gone on with our lives, busying ourselves with classwork as the semester carries on. Grace, of course, has been far more dedicated to her studies than the rest of us, but that isn't anything new. I've slowly forgiven Morgan for using me as a tool for her and her loser ex-boyfriend to mess with Marco, but I probably won't ever trust her as much as I once did. As usual, Paul stops by on Fridays. We go to the movies or just order in cheap food and end up making out on the couch. We haven't slept together yet. I know he must have been frustrated by it, but I believe waiting until you're in love. And no, I don't mean the butterflies in your stomach love. That type of love is short-lived and flimsy like tinfoil. I mean, the type of love that is so sturdy, it's like it's made of titanium, strong enough to last this lifetime and maybe even into the next. Most people find my ideas about love and sex to be too old-fashioned. Morgan constantly tells me to get rid of my Betty Draper sensibilities, but if she had grown up hearing the stories of my great-grandparents' love, she would feel the same way. My great-grandmother, Louisa, was a radium girl. Working in the factories to paint glow-in-the-dark dials on the faces of watches for soldiers fighting in World War I. As a way of flirting with these men who were risking their lives for their country, some of the single girls would paint their names and addresses onto the back of the watch. A few of them would get letters back from the soldiers. Louisa, my great-grandmother, was shy and only had the courage to write her name and address on one of these watches. That watch was issued to Douglas Weatherly, the man who would become my great-grandfather. The two spent the next year writing love letters back and forth until Douglas stopped replying. I was told stories about how my 17-year-old great-grandmother would weep every night, fearing that Douglas had died in battle. But three months later, just as news that the war was over was spreading through her little town in Ohio, an injured soldier showed up at her door. It was Douglas. They went on to be married for 60 years, having seven children, 20 grandchildren, and 48 great-grandchildren. I know this story took place a long time ago, but this is the type of love I'm waiting for.
Let's see now, where was I? Oh yes. Throughout those last few weeks, I had heeded Charlotte's warning. I avoided anything that had to do with candles. I got rid of all the blue pills in the house. Well, only the blue pills in my possession. I threw out my old antibiotics from my ear infection last year and gave away my Tylenol to some girl at school having a headache. I even crept into Grace and Morgan's rooms to look at their medication. But I knew if I had thrown away Grace's sleeping pills and Morgan's birth control, they would have my head on a silver platter. With nothing of serious consequence happening since the night of the grease fire, I figured I had done enough to avoid calamity. The next day, I got up early. I had a feeling it was going to be a good writing day. Best of all, it was a Wednesday, a day I only had one boring class. I sat through my obligatory hour and 20 minutes of required biology before I made a beeline to the cafe for some coffee and then to my favorite quiet nook in the library. The muse was speaking to me, as they say. I could see every aspect of Daisy Fairchild's life, from the time she was a baby until her dying breath. I saw her great romance with the lawyer's son, and her comfortable but passionless marriage with the baker. Best of all, I could see her run away from that loveless marriage and be reunited with the teenage boy she had loved years ago, causing drama and speculation everywhere they went. They were the talk of the town for years, but once she was divorced and then married again, they lived on happily ever after until their golden years, like some Regency-era fairy tale. I had been at the library for hours, typing thousands of words when I was knocked out of my stupor by the vibration of my phone. A text dashed across the screen. Hey, we're about to start. Where are you? It was from Julia, one of the most hated people on campus. She's bossy and high-strung, and of course we have gothic lit together. She created a new study group with Melanie, Connor, and me. I was supposed to meet them at her dorm ten minutes ago. Sorry, I'll be late. Be there in five, I texted back as I packed up my things. I walked in Julia's room and was greeted by a nod and a sup from Melanie. Finally, Julia said, more tightly wound than usual. I lost track of time. I was working on another assignment, I explained. I take a seat on Julia's bed next to Melanie, who is cross-legged with a notebook in her lap and a copy of Rebecca and Dracula at her side. Well, that's great, but we all need your brain for this stuff, whined Julia. She had straight brown hair and big fish-like eyes. She was barely five feet tall, but her unpleasant personality and demanding tone of voice made sure you didn't miss her. You all get good grades. What do you need me for? I asked. Yeah, said Connor with his hoodie still up over his head like he was expecting it to rain inside the dorm. But you nailed it in our last discussion. Professor White never looked happier when he was talking to you. We need some of that for our papers. Okay, fine, but don't expect miracles, I said. Who first? Me, said Julia. Of course she would want to go first. She went on and on using feminist theory to deconstruct Rebecca and Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre wasn't in the lesson plan, and Professor White instructed us only to compare books that we've read so far. I think you can mention Jane Eyre, but you need to bring in another book. We have Dracula, Frankenstein, Northanger Abbey, and a collection of stories from Poe to choose from. All of those have an interesting take on women in society, and Julia cut me off. I think Professor White will like what I'm doing, so I'm going to keep it that way. Fine, I said, wanting to avoid talking to her any longer. Okay, and Mel, what about you? I was, like, gonna compare the use of folklore in Rebecca and Dracula, said Melanie, who was wearing her sunglasses inside like she was at a trendy party in LA. But Rebecca doesn't have any folklore, I interjected. 
It so does, said Mel. You see, the pre-existing story about Rebecca acts in the same way as a superstitious story. See, no one in either of these stories can explain anything in a rational way, but everyone knew something was up. Both the unnamed protagonist of Rebecca and Jonathan in Dracula ignore this, and it leads them to chaos and destruction. That, I began, is brilliant. Mel gave a small bow. Thank you. I spent the next hour helping Connor flesh out his poorly constructed thesis about masculinity in Dracula and Frankenstein until it finally made some sense. By this time, it was almost eight at night, and I didn't even have the energy to talk about my paper with these people. I gotta go, I said, putting on my jacket. Me too, said Melanie. Julia opened the door to her room that led out into the hallway. Connor slinked off in the other direction to get to the male side of the dormitory. Melanie and I walked in silence until we got downstairs to the main entrance. We both stopped in our tracks. It was pouring rain outside. Crap, I have to walk home in this, I moaned. I'd give you a ride, said Melanie, but I only have one helmet. She pulled out a shiny black motorcycle helmet and shoved it on her head. She ducked out of the building and hopped on a jet black motorcycle. I stood there, staring at the rain, hoping I could wait it out until someone walked right into me. It's some kid in an oversized sweatshirt who was staring at his phone. Watch it, I said. He looked up at me and ripped his red headphones out of his ears. It was Marco. Oh, um, Fiona, I'm sorry, he said, flushing with embarrassment. Listen, I wasn't following you. I live here, he said, pointing upstairs to where the dorm rooms were. It's okay, don't worry about it. I'm just in a bad mood since I have to walk home in this weather. The rain intensified and a streak of lightning dashed across the sky. A moment later, thunder roared, shaking the building. You shouldn't go out in that, Marco began. I'll be fine, it's only six blocks. I fished my hat out of my bag and began stuffing my wild mane into it. Lightning ripped through the clouds once again and another bolt of thunder echoed across the campus. Fiona, you shouldn't. Marco reached out and grabbed my hand to hold me back. At that second, a lightning bolt shot down and struck an electrical post that held a transformer. A storm of sparks erupted from the metal machine before it squeaked an electrical hissing sound and dunked the world into darkness. Screams of panicked girls rang out across the building. Come with me, said Marco, who was still holding my hand. But, I tried to protest, he pulled me close. I could feel his chest pushed up against mine and his chin lightly grazing my forehead. I know things are weird with us and I'm really, truly sorry, but I can't let you walk home alone in a blackout. It's not safe. I promise you, you'll be safe here with me. I couldn't help but agree with him. When I didn't argue with him, he pulled me gently across the lobby and up a flight of stairs. Guided by the flashlight on his cell phone, he opened the door to the room nearest the elevator, which was now rendered useless. Wow, this is such a big room. I didn't even know they had dorms like this, I said to him. It's because my roommate Adam uses a wheelchair, he explained. So we get a larger room so he can move around. The place was at least twice the size of the dorm room I had when I had lived in this building last year. Both beds were on the ground and were a lot larger than the standard cots we were issued. To the side, I could see a wheelchair-accessible bathroom. Wow, your own bathroom? That must be nice, I said before instantly shutting my mouth. I realized how shallow I was sounding, only noticing the perks of his roommate's condition and none of the downsides. 
Is Adam gonna be okay with me staying here? I asked, suddenly feeling awkward and nervous. No, he only lives on campus part-time. He goes home a few days a week to get treatments, Marco explained. Oh, I looked around the place for a room to sit, but I couldn't see anything but Marco's bed by the window. I heard him walk across the room and move towards his desk. I don't think he knew where I was situated in the darkness. I put my backpack on the ground and sat on his bed. He fumbled around in one of his desk drawers, before saying, I know it's against the dorm rules, but I'm going to light some candles so we can see in here. He took out something heavy and made of glass and set it down on the desk. Charlotte's writing shot through my brain. I can't be around candles. Don't, I called out. I can't be around flame. He laughed. Why not? Are you made of paint thinner or something? No, it's just, I'm really afraid of fire. I lied. It was the only valid excuse I could come up with at the time. Don't worry, I'll keep him away from you. He flicked his thumb over the lighter, and a warm flame caught the wick of three candles. They were ornate and beautiful, held in colorful glass that depicted three religious scenes. One was the Virgin Mary painted in blue and gold, clutching the baby Jesus to her chest. The other showed an ascended Christ with golden hair, tan skin, and a ruby heart crowned in thorns. The last candle was of an angel, young, round-faced, and dressed in flowing white robes. Marco left Mary and Jesus on the desk and brought the angel over with him. He stopped in his tracks for a moment when he saw me sitting on the bed. If it hadn't been so dark, I bet I would have seen him blush. He placed the candle on the window seal and sat next to me on the bed. I swear, I'm not some religious nut, he said. My sister gave them to me and, well, I couldn't just throw them out. I keep them around for emergencies. I nodded, too focused on Charlotte's warning to hear his words fully. I sat there, paralyzed by panic, waiting for something bad to happen. There were candles, and Charlotte said no candles. I broke her rules, and now I was going to pay for it with some sort of life-threatening disaster. Was he going to attack me? Threaten to kill me if I didn't love him back? No. Charlotte said he wasn't a threat after all. Maybe people were going to be in rioting and looting in the blackout. I imagined the windows of my school being smashed through by a mob of angry criminals. But that didn't seem too likely. None of it seemed likely. But maybe it was just the candles after all. They were going to catch something on fire and burn this place to the ground, like what almost happened at the Red Lantern. My heart was racing again, and I was starting to shake, both from nerves and from how cold the building was getting now that there was no longer heat being pumped through the vents. Marco noticed my shaking. Hey, are you alright? He asked, leaning closer. I'm scared, I confessed. You're safe in here, he said. I inched closer to him. You don't know that. You don't understand what this is. I stopped myself from explaining further. He grasped my forearm. I'll keep you safe, I promise. I didn't fight him on this. I didn't tell him that he was wrong because I knew Charlotte knew something bad was going to happen. Then I remembered the letter didn't say no candles. It just said no more than one. I sprung to my feet and dashed over to his desk and blew out those two candles. I breathed a sigh of relief. Wow, you really are afraid of fire, aren't you? He asked. Yep, can we just keep one lit for now? Okay. He looked at me, amused with my quirks. I got back on his bed, and after sitting in silence for several minutes, I started to grow tired. Would it be weird if I were to lay down? I asked him. I'm getting really tired. Go ahead, he said. I lay down on my back. The mattress squeaked as Marco slowly let his body sink into the bed next to me. This might have weirded me out at a different point in my life, but I wanted to feel someone close to me, and I didn't want just physical closeness. I wanted someone to understand what I was going through. Can I ask you something? I said. Yeah, anything. What did you say to me, well, to Anthony, pretending to be me, when 
You first got my number, I asked, with curiosity getting the better of me. Oh. He swallowed hard. I told you that I liked you since we first saw each other freshman year, and they replied that you had liked me too for a long time. I then idiotically confessed that I fell in love with you when I used to hang outside of your writing classes so I could hear you read your stories out loud. You did? I asked. Yeah, it wasn't intentional at first. I had some mandatory English class I had to attend, and I always got lost in that confusing humanities building. And one day I was really turned around and I heard your voice. I stood out there in the hallway, out of sight, just listening and enjoying the way you read your words with so much light in them. It was like you were glowing from the inside out. I wasn't even looking at you. I could just hear it. And from then on, I was toast. You really did that. I looked up at him. He turned away embarrassed. Yeah, but don't worry. I stopped a while ago. It was only a few times anyway. Listen, I've started seeing someone, he explained. A, a therapist. I didn't like who I became after that whole catfishing thing landed me at your door. And I just wanted you to know I never meant to scare you or to harm you or anything. I just wanted to be with you and I didn't know how to go about that, he said. I could feel him looking at me, the longing pouring from his eyes. I met his gaze. I started to see him in a different light, or maybe to see him fully for the first time. His features were far more handsome than I had previously noticed. He had a rather masculine jawline, angular cheekbones, and warm brown eyes. A funny feeling stretched over my heart. Oh no, I thought, knowing too well what this feeling was. This was the feeling I get before I develop a crush on someone. With the glow of candlelight and the scent of fabric softener drifting off of Marco's bedspread, I started to relax. I want to trust you. I want to feel safe with you, I confessed. Of course. And you can, I swear, he declared. Slowly, I found myself moving into him, to the point where my hands were nestled into his sweater and I could feel his breath and the stubble from his chin brush my face. He used his arm to move me in closer, snuggling me deep into his body. His tall and lanky frame seemed to act like a shield against everything I was afraid of. He was softer and more tender than I thought touching him would be like. I never felt like this when I was with Paul. Marco rested his hand on my cheek and stroked my forehead with his thumb. That's what I find most beautiful about you, he said. What? I asked. Oh, I didn't mean to say that out loud. His face looked paralyzed with embarrassment. It's okay. Tell me. Your eyes. I love how one is brown and the other is gray. Oh, that. It's called heterochromia, and I hate it, I told him, covering my eyes with my hand. That's ridiculous. It makes you so unique. He pushed my hand away. No, I think it makes me look like a husky, I said. Well, huskies are great dogs, he laughed. I smiled at him. Can I tell you something else? I asked. Of course. You promise you won't laugh or judge me or think that I'm crazy. Just say it, he smiled. Okay, well, remember that letter you handed me? I asked him. He nodded and I proceeded to tell him the whole story. About Charlotte, her letters, the Asian woman, the poisoned meat, the fire, the man in the shadows, and now something to do with candles and blue pills. Do you believe me? I asked when I was done. I mean, it's strange, he began, but I think you're telling the truth. I don't know how to describe it, but these letters have some kind of power. I rolled away from his grasp and turned to my backpack, fishing the letters out. I've started carrying them around with me, too afraid that someone else will find them, I explained. He opened his phone and used the light from the screen to read the notes. You aren't making this up, he said as he studied Charlotte's words. This seems legit. Yeah, I mean, I've been trying to play it off in my head as some sort of prank, or maybe this weird miscommunication with this Asian woman who showed up at my door, but 
these things started happening and Charlotte has been right about everything. So that's why I'm scared and that's why I need to find this woman who gave me the letter. Did you get any information from her? Her name? He asked. No, nothing. Except her license plate. I memorized it before she took off, but I couldn't look it up anywhere online. All of the databases are for state officials only, so I can't track her down. Marco smiled at me. What? I asked, pulling myself closer to him. I don't have access to it myself, but I know someone who does. One phone call and I can get you that woman's name and address. The Dead Letters Podcast is written and produced by me, VP Morris. If you enjoyed today's episode, please help support the show by leaving a five-star review. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.